The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Last time on Our Curious Past, we began to explore the fascinating yet controversial life story of travel writer and adventurer William Seabrook. After years of moving from job to job, he has now found fame and success with his book, Adventures in Arabia. And now it is 1928, and for the follow-up, he heads out to Haiti to research voodoo and zombies. It will prove to be the most influential book of his career, but as you'll see, his journey will take many more twists and turns. I'm Peter Laws, and tonight on Our Curious Past, we conclude our look at zombies, cannibals, and kinky S&M. This is the seriously wild life of William Seabrook. It wasn't easy in Haiti, at least at first. When Seabrook turned up in 1927, the Haitians were just simply not keen on sharing their religion with the white outsiders, and there were plenty of white people around. Because in 1915, Haiti fell under American rule, so there were white soldiers and businessmen all over the place interfering. And so Seabrook probably looked like just another one of those white men, but he persisted with the Haitians, and soon they started to realize that he had a genuine fascination with their culture. And eventually, he was able to travel all across the country interviewing islanders and taking part in voodoo rituals. But then he met a Haitian farmer called Polynice. And it was him who first introduced him to some actual zombies. Now bear with me here as I explain. Zombies are an important part of the voodoo religion, which has as a central concept the idea of people being possessed by other gods. Seabrook witnessed countless voodoo rituals while he was there, where Haitians would dance to repetitive rhythms and open themselves up to trance-like states. Zombies in that religion were the bodies of dead people that were being used as slaves by voodoo sorcerers. This zombie imagery was very powerful for the Haitians, since their people had a grim history of being exploited and stolen from West Africa and shipped by the Europeans to live and work as slaves in Haiti, so they were used to being controlled, as if their lives were not their own. And so the idea that they could still be controlled after death as zombies was both poignant, heartbreaking, and terribly scary. For Seabrook, he thought this was really just a symbol. But this farmer, Polynice, insisted that zombies were real. And he said, At this very moment, in the moonlight, there are zombies working on this island. Less than a two-hour ride from my own habitation. If you will ride with me tomorrow night, yes, I will show you dead men working in the cane fields. You might not be surprised to hear that Seabrook eagerly took up this offer. And so a few days later, 
Polynice led Seabrook across the island, and they reached the fields by mid-afternoon. And as the sun hammered down on them, Polynice pointed out some figures in the distance who were working in the field. Those people, he said, were zombies. And they went to take a closer look. This is what Seabrook wrote of his experience. My first impression of the three supposed zombies who continued dumbly at work was that there was something about them. Unnatural strange. They were plodding like brutes, like automatons. Their eyes were the worst. It was not my imagination. They were, in truth, like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. The whole face, for that matter, was bad enough. It was vacant, as if there was nothing behind it. It seemed not only expressionless, but incapable of expression. I had seen so much previously in Haiti that was outside ordinary normal experience that for the flash of a second I had a sickening, almost panicky lapse in which I thought, or or rather felt, great God, maybe this stuff is really true. And if it is true, it is rather awful, for it upsets everything. By everything, I meant the natural fixed laws and processes on which all modern human thought and action are based. Despite this initial reaction, he eventually decided that these couldn't possibly be actual zombies, but perhaps mentally unstable locals who were being exploited under the guise of voodoo. They may have even been zombified with some sort of toxic powder or substance. That was one of Seabrook's theories which was really ahead of its time. But this exotic and supernaturally charged account of his became the book The Magic Island, and after it was published in 1929, it was an instant success. The New York Evening Post called it the most thrilling book of exploration that we have ever read. And the lurid illustrations that were provided by an ex-drug addict called Alexander King certainly helped the book gain fans. It was so popular that the book even inspired a stage play called Zombie, which turned out to be a disaster. But more effective was the horror film with Bela Lugosi, White Zombie, which would have a massive influence on the horror genre, bringing zombies to the world consciousness. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. And so Seabrook's career was thriving and he started to write new books based on, for example, his adventures in Africa. And as ever, he took his research to the next level. When he was writing about West African cannibalism in 1931, he decided to try cannibalism for himself. And so he managed to procure some human thigh meat from a Parisian hospital and he cooked and ate it, organizing a dinner party around it so he could be observed doing so. And he wrote that human flesh tastes like good, fully developed veal. His life was becoming more and more notorious, and eventually his marriage to Katie was falling apart. They were divorced in 1934, but in 1935, Seabrook married another writer called Marjorie Worthington. And he kept on writing, and while he did so, he continued his love for exploring his sadomasochism and bondage interests. 
For example, in the autobiography of an American photographer called Man Ray, Ray mentioned that he agreed to do some house-sitting for Seabrook in Paris one day. And when he turned up, he discovered a naked woman chained to Seabrook's staircase. Hi! (gasps) Seabrook had been paying her to stay with him and to act like a dog. Man Ray later wrote of this weird incident. She was nude except for a soiled, ragged loincloth, with her hands behind her back, chained to the post with a padlock. Seabrook produced a key in informing that I was to release the girl only in case of an emergency. A fire or for a short visit to the bathroom. She was being paid to do this for a few days and was very docile and willing. I was to order dinner from the dining room, anything we liked, wine, champagne, but under no circumstances were we to have the girl eat with us. She was to be served on a plate with the food cut up and placed on the floor near her as for a dog. She'd get down on her knees to eat, but the chain was long enough. But once Seabrook left him alone, Man Ray felt bad about this girl, and so he let the woman free. And they all had dinner together with a photographer called Lee Miller. And he asked the girl, had Seabrook hurt her? But she said that he hadn't. That instead, he would simply put her in these chains and then stand near to her for hours at a time, just staring at her and drinking whiskey. Man Ray actually went to collaborate with Seabrook in 1930 on an explicit photo collection called The Fantasies of Mr. Seabrook which basically consists of shots of Seabrook holding women with metal braces and chains around their neck and leather-clad women twisting the nipples of other naked women with pliers bound with straps on the floor. Considering that Seabrook was something of a celebrity at the time, the fact that he was open about this stuff is really quite remarkable. But he didn't seem ashamed of it. He was very happy to discuss it. Man Ray went on to say that he believed that Seabrook's interest in S&M had something to do with his mother and the overbearing nature of his relationship with her. But he also said that there was something of the sadist about William Seabrook. But now with three successful books on Arabia, Haiti and Africa, Seabrook found that the success lessened his passion for travel. He started writing less and alcohol became a more prominent part of his life. And in 1932, he even crashed and overturned a Citroen car while driving drunk. The alcohol abuse became so serious that he ended up being put into Bloomingdale Insane Asylum for seven months. And never want to waste an opportunity for journalism, Seabrook decided to write up his experience in the book Asylum, in which he wrote vivid descriptions of his fellow inmates and his own experiences For example, how Seabrook felt that his own toenails had grown horribly long in there, the longest he'd ever seen on a person. Now, remember that Seabrook was quite famous by this point, and so, by all accounts, this was the first celebrity rehab memoir. While in the asylum, his therapist helped him to decide that his alcoholism was due to his resentment of his mother and a strong fear of failure. He just never felt like he was good enough. After the asylum, Seabrook had some recovery and recuperation in a farmhouse that belonged to his own doctor. This was in a place called Rhinebeck, a well-to-do area of New York. And to his surprise, Seabrook started to quite enjoy his life there, even though it was a world away from the wild overseas adventures he'd once had. But the enjoyment didn't last long. One of Seabrook's writing heroes, F. Scott Fitzgerald, made fun of his book on the asylum in Fitzgerald's own book called The Crack-Up. 
And Seabrook was devastated to get this criticism from a colleague like that. And he started to resent his life again. He felt bored and miserable and like a failure. And the only thing that seemed to lift his spirits was a mysterious new project. Duke University were studying the fascinating world of ESP, extrasensory perception. And so Seabrook decided to try and duplicate some of their experiments in his own barn. And he decided to write about them while combining these ESP experiments with his S&M sex life. And so over the next 18 months, he would research ESP by advertising for female volunteers. And when they arrived, he would pay them to strip naked and be chained, shackled, or tied. He claimed this was all part of his cutting-edge research into the unexplained. But others around him felt it was just any old excuse for him to experiment sexually. But the result of this was the book Witchcraft, Its Power in the World Today. He also included some of his earlier experiences with Alistair Crowley, and apparently Crowley thought the book was a bit crap, and so they fell out. In January 1941, Seabrook even tried to help with the war effort by putting a hex on Adolf Hitler. He tried to sell this story to Reader's Digest of all places, but they turned it down. But Life magazine decided to cover it, and so they sent out a photographer to a woodland cabin in Maryland, where Seabrook and some others gathered in a circle, and Seabrook brought in a dressmaker's dummy that had been covered with swashtickers and a peaked cap, and also the dummy's lip, of course, had the trademark Hitler moustache. And he told the group to chant these words to the dummy. You are Hitler. Hitler is you. We curse you by every tear and drop of blood you have caused to flow. We curse you with the curses of all who have cursed you. And after that, they all started to pound nails into the dummy and then finally decapitated it with an axe. Now, either the curse didn't work or it was incredibly slow moving because Hitler wouldn't succumb for another four years. Seabrook's time in the asylum hadn't really cured his alcoholism because he returned to drink and his marriage to Marjorie failed in 1941. But he was married the following year to a woman called Constance Cure, and she was a little unusual. At one point, she apparently suggested that Seabrook tried plunging his elbows into a bowl of boiling water, which he did, and injured himself. She later wrote about him, saying that he received sexual pleasure from self-inflicted pain. And she also wrote that Seabrook had an incredibly large penis. Too large for comfort, she said. Whatever the case, he started to struggle more mentally as he grew older, and he was committed to various asylums towards the end of his life. But he also created a life with Constance. They had a child. And though life was hard and complicated, there were still moments of goodness towards the end. And like Seabrook and his father before him, they called the little boy William, William III. And he would sometimes come in on a morning and wake up his father with a little bell. But then on one night, Seabrook was spending the evening playing cards with Constance. And he kept going to the toilet quite a lot during the game. And he was feeling a bit tired and headed up to bed. And then the next morning, little William III went into his father's bedroom as normal and rang his little bell, hoping to wake his father. But 
Seabrook didn't move or respond to the sound. William told Constance and she rushed in to find that her husband was indeed dead. And the cause? He'd taken an overdose of sleeping pills. William Seabrook's wild, colourful, controversial and shocking life had come to an end. But he had packed that life with a series of achievements, adventures, failures and failings and contradictions that would have been enough for many, many lifetimes. William Seabrook is sometimes only remembered, really, as the man who popularized the word zombie. Or, at a push, he might be described as the author who became a cannibal for a book. For those who dig even deeper, they may see him as some sort of perverted sadist, others as a tragic man who had been damaged by his relationship with his mother. He is, as we all are, I suppose, a bundle of wires, a mess of experiences. But his life was particularly messy. He was a man who would not settle, but kept on pushing for new experiences, which would make him rich and famous, but also lonely and broken. His son, William III, who discovered his body that morning, became an elementary school teacher in North Carolina. And in an interview with Atavist magazine, he admitted that he could not remember his father. He'd read some of his books and liked adventures in Arabia especially, but he had little interest in all of those occult stories And of zombies, he told the magazine, I could not be less interested in that as a general subject. He said he wasn't interested in the bondage stuff either. He said his father had always wanted to live a life in contrast with his preacher-child upbringing. He wanted to be different from the family life that was around him. And he rebelled. Ironically, you could say that William III did the same by leading a normal conventional life. His career choice was in a way a rebellion against the wildlife of his father. Not many people talk about William Seabrook today, other than in terms of this word zombie, but I think his influence is far more noticeable than you might think. Not only does he have this crazy life, but really he was one of the first writers to see that journalism and travel writing can, yes, be about observing others, but it takes on a special kind of resonance for the reader when we see the writer jumping into the action. This sort of journalism is incredibly popular today. You just look at how many articles and books and news reports are not just observation, they are immersion. From the bloggers who don't just write about a new diet, but they actually try it, to the war reporters sending back reports from the front line to popular documentaries where the host experiences shocking and crazy things on the screen. I've done this myself when I wrote my own non-fiction book, The Frighteners. I wanted to have lots of experiences so that I could write from those experiences. Seabrook, despite his many flaws, brought this sort of writing to the masses and our journalism and travel writing has not been the same since. Well, as we come to the end of this crazy journey through the life of a searching man perhaps you can ask the question did he find what he was looking for the way he died suggests not but who knows I'm Peter Laws and today on our curious past we've been exploring zombies cannibals and SNM and the truly wild life of William Seabrook <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC.